CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Good afternoon, everyone. two of your Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by the Chicago Reader and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Miles Kampf Lassen, the pride and joy of in these times, the pride and joy of Whitney Young High School, a rock and roll superstar from back in the early O's has joined us. Miles, did you get a haircut? Not yet. Not yet. Okay, it's just calm differently. Sorry about it. all that attention on my Miles. Kind of like feels about when he comes to the show the way Nancy Pelosi supporters feel. Like like when Nancy leaves the White House, people always comment on the dress. And Miles is like, "How come we always talk about my hair, man? There's more to me than my hair." Okay. I I try to you know much like uh, our friends at the what I've been watching lately, the Great British Baking Show. I try to combine both <laughs> stuff. And substance. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, we have. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, we're all of our all of us are a little, little bit ungroomed lately because of uh, you know the the situation out of our. So, you know, just letting those, I'm just letting those locks grow. Well, let me just say this on the issue of uh, being ungroomed. I've been uh, unfashionably ungroomed since uh, the early days of the Jimmy Carter administration. So uh, I was ungroomed long before it was fashionable. All right, we got a lot to talk about with Miles. Uh, Madigan, Robin, cabinet. I'm all fired up on Rom in the cabinet. Uh, I don't know what Joy Biden is thinking. I actually don't even think Joy Biden's thinking of it. I think Rom's just promoting it. Uh, the mission mm. Senate victory, all kinds of things. Uh, but let's just talk about the budget in the city of Chicago a little bit. Uh, Miles, Miles covers local and national news uh, for in these times. We just got the breaking news. Dennis gave me uh, Lori Lightfoot got her budget passed. I think the vote was uh, 28 to 22 on the tax increase portion of the budget. And then <laughs> 29 to 21 on the budget itself. What a joke. Some aldermen voted against the tax and then voted for the budget. Thinks this, this alderman, whoever it is, I don't know, it must think his or her constituents are really stupid. Um, you know, Jeanette Taylor, powerful uh, quote denouncing the budget. Uh, don't give me crumbs and tell me it's cake. And she was sort of uh, speaking for a lot of people of the leftist persuasion in the city of Chicago. And she said that, Miles. On the other hand, uh, I see that uh, Maria Haddon, Andre Vasquez, Michael Rodriguez uh, voted for it. So what's your general thoughts on uh, the budget that the mayor has pushed to the city council. Miles, are you there? Ben, are you there? I'm here. I'm waiting for Miles. I think he just, we lost him. We're having some <laughs> troubles today with the show. There are days and there are days. Um, you know what? Uh, live listeners, live stream listeners, I appreciate you sticking through this, but the podcasters, they'll never even know about this, D. <laughs> You're right. But uh, yeah, we lost Miles. I, I was holding back. Waiting for him to answer that, but um, we have uh, seen. We've seen. Uh, all right, I'll fill in for Miles. Up. Well, you know, my hair is really long, and uh, you know, it's just getting <laughs> out of control. Uh, that budget, I tell you, that's crazy. But boy, I. You know, I play guitar. 
was well done, man. <laughs> I'm trying. For a second, I thought that was Miles. <laughs> I'm trying. Uh, so we're going to reach back out to Miles, see what he has to say. No, but you're, you're taking a look at that uh, article there in the Sun-Times. Uh, kind of share with everybody what we're learning here, because uh, like I said, it's just now breaking. Yeah, I was just breaking. I uh, I noticed that this was the point I was raising with Miles. And if you um, if you really follow closely the the politics of the left in the city of Chicago, uh, three uh, aldermen who are generally considered uh, progressives or um, Democratic socialists voted for the uh, the budget. That would be Maria Haddon of the 49th Ward uh, on the far north side. Uh, Mike Rodriguez of the uh, 22nd Ward in um, Little Village. And Andre Vasquez of the 40th Ward, uh, which is... Um, around just west of Andersonville uh, on the north side of Chicago. So, you know, there's uh, each alderman has his or her own reason. I think there's a lot of obvious wheeling and dealing behind the scenes uh, that each alderman is trying to cut his, his or her own deal. Miles, are you there? I'm back. Oh, you sound much better. I don't know what went down, but I was asking you for your uh, general thoughts on the budget. I noted that three progressive aldermen, Maria Haddon, Mike Rodriguez, and Andre Vasquez voted for it, even though um, many of their uh, colleagues uh, in the, on the left side of the council voted. No, what's your general thoughts? Yeah, I think that this was obviously, this is a pretty historic um, budget vote in that uh, as you just said, the numbers, I mean, that 21 is pretty close to 26, you know, and, and but they, they still, the opposition still fell short, uh, including by winning over some of the uh, progressives, Maria Haddon, Mike uh, Rodriguez, and Andre Vasquez, as you mentioned. Um, this is, you know, a complicated time because there's a um, mayor who has resisted what, to, to say the least, a lot of the proposals put forward by uh, progressives on the council. And yet we're in the midst of a pandemic and the city is struggling as, as its residents are. And there were some elements of this budget that would, you know, provide support as, you know, as you would expect from a citywide budget. I can't, you know, pathologize what they, you know, any of these particular three progressives uh, uh, decided, you know, what made, what made them decide to side with the mayor on this particular vote. But I would not be shocked if they explained it by saying that, you know, they were voting for the good parts of the budget and, you know, they're, they're going to continue to fight against the bad parts. The problem is, look, this is where the road meets the rubber is on the actual votes through the democratic process. And this was a chance to reject another what most, you know, I think progressive observers would call an austerity budget, a budget that asks uh, working people in Chicago to uh, pay more in order to make up for the financial crisis that has resulted not just from COVID, but by from the fact that, uh, you know, corporate class in the city has gotten wealthier and wealthier as poor communities are continuing to be starved of resources, which is exactly the dynamic that this uh, mayor said she was running against when she went, when she ran for mayor uh, uh, just a few months ago. So, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I think it's not surprising that the vote was this close. Um, I think that the defections uh, from the left that you named are pretty noticeable and stark. And, you know, that'll be a, a debate among groups that backed those candidates, I'm sure, but also about how to like build and get to 26, you know, because I think that that's 
uh, what, especially on issues like this, that's what it comes down to is how do you build a coalition that can actually not just not be a rubber stamp, which we saw, you know, clearly this council is not just approving everything, but able to push back and, and peel back some, uh, some gains for working people. I mean, look at the whole issue of progressive taxation. That was hardly even talked about. We, we could have restored the corporate head tax in this budget. We could have included a higher, you know, tax on retail property rather than asking just, you know, regular homeowners in the city of Chicago to pay more across the board. There's all kinds of progressive measures that could have been taken that um, this administration resisted. So, I mean, the fight goes on, but uh, I think you're right to point out that those were, you know, uh, pretty surprising. Well, it's really difficult to talk about uh, new forms of taxation in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, And I know this uh, because I'm feeling the the effects of the pandemic hard in our in our own little house right here. So I know it's across the board. And to a large degree, I think this budget, as I said, is a punt, uh, putting off tough decisions in the hopes of uh, money coming in from uh, Joe Biden. So I, I, I gather that. But. One thing I progressives have to realize, just putting aside the uh, the, the spe- specificity of the situation you're in with the pandemic, is that there's clearly not close to 26 votes in the city council for a progressive budget. Because if you take a look at the aldermen who voted no, Miles, they come from different groups within the city council, different factions, and some of them would be vehemently opposed to anything remotely resembling a progressive uh, budget. So for instance, my good friend Raylo on the 15th Ward, I don't know if he would vote for a progressive uh, budget. The North Side aldermen who voted no, I don't know if they would vote for a, a progressive budget. And uh, the Northwest Side aldermen, I have to see exactly who voted no, but the people who had been opposed Marty Quinn, the 13th Ward Alderman, voted no, I believe, in finance. So I don't know. I don't know how he voted today. But so I don't know if there are votes for a progressive uh, budget. You you know what I'm saying? That we could read too much into this to say that. And I don't want to give too rosy of a picture. I mean, obviously, those are fights that need to be had. But those I mean, those are proposals that have been put forward consistently by um, by people like Carlos Ramirez Rosa and Rosana Rodriguez, um, the 35th and 33rd boards, respectively. I mean, these these aren't like ideas that are uh, coming out of nowhere. They've been discussed. And I think that the only way you see if they win is, is if you bring them to the floor for a vote. And instead, what this administration's done, and you know, council's done, is all of these proposals into the rules committee again, where they've gone to die, much like happened under previous um, mayors. And I'll just say, you know, and I'll say this because this is what these uh, uh, folks have openly said. But you're just to put a point, uh, pin on what you uh, were, were saying earlier. Nick Spasato today said he openly said he re- he respects ninety six percent of his colleagues, which I think was a pretty clear. You know, we could cle- clearly. Uh, ascertain what he's trying to say through that. And Brennan Riley uh, said that he had to listen to, he tweeted this out earlier today, he said he had to listen to so much left-wing uh, rhetoric, he had to, you, you, you know, pull back and, and breathe into a bag in order to uh, not freak out. So clearly, there's some of these some of these uh, long-time aldermen are getting a little triggered by all the all open left-wing talk that's happening on the city council, which I think is a pretty positive development. I mean, if you listen to some of the public comments, they were, you know, 
from regular working people, organizers, activists, people that are facing the realities of life in Chicago as being, you know, poor person of color and saying, we're not going to put up with this anymore. I think that there needs to be more of that type of voice on city council. I think we haven't had it in a long time. And um, I think the, the, the inclusion of some open leftists on the council helps. And then also kind of because of this new arrangement because of COVID with the call in into the, um, into these meetings, we've been able to hear more from people on the ground that are dealing with this. And, you know, some clearly some older men are pretty uncomfortable with that, but I say, uh, let's get some more of it. And, and it's a perfect segue into the Rom discussion because what you're uh, getting at, uh, not so much with Nick Spazzato, uh, who is pretty much a Trumpster. I, I haven't talked to Nick since this election. So I don't know if he did vote for uh, Trump this time around. He did last time. Uh, so he's pretty much a Trumpster. But uh, Brennan Riley uh, from the 42nd Ward on the Gold Coast uh, has been really edging toward Trump country uh, in this last month or so. Uh, he endorsed uh, uh Pat O'Brien in the run against Kim Fox for state's attorney. And now he's so upset by the rhetoric uh, coming from the speeches coming from the Carlos Ramiro Roses of the world that he felt compelled uh, to put out that tweet. Uh, so this gets at sort of the dynamics of the Democratic Party uh, that's so symbolized uh, by Rahm Emanuel. And uh, Rahm, uh, when he was mayor of the city of Chicago, had opened... <laughs> hatred for all things on the left. Brendan Riley seems to be uh, drinking from Rom's cup there. Uh, and now Rom, now that Joe Biden was elected largely by um, the support, I would say, of lefties uh, and um, black voters, uh, Rom is trying to emerge uh, and get an appointment uh, to the, um, the administration and the cabinet somehow or other. So any position. I think he'll take any position just to say, hey, I'm, I'm you know, uh, I'm, I'm a player. Uh, what's your thoughts about this, uh, Miles? Do you think that um, uh, that the uh, the left will be able to convince Joe Biden to keep Rahm Emanuel out of the cabinet? Uh, do you think that uh, Joe Biden will try to appease uh, the Brendan Rileys of the world by putting Rahm in the cabinet? What's your thoughts on this? If I had to get, well, so, I mean, my position on this, I have uh, uh, been pretty clear about, I actually wrote uh, an article for In These Times that was called Keep Rahm Emanuel as far away from the Biden administration as possible, uh, laying out uh, the, the case for that. I actually wrote a different piece that I believe is coming out soon in a publication called Jalopnik, uh, focuses mainly on actually cars and transportation issues, but making the case specifically why he should not be transportation secretary, which is what uh, the position he's been uh, floated for. Now, according to Greg Hines at, uh, at, um, at Cranes, he's apparently angling for or being considered for U.S. trade representative. Uh, I haven't heard those reports confirmed. Who knows where Greg you know, got that idea, maybe from Rahm himself. We don't, you know, we, we, we don't, we don't know exactly where the, this rumor mill uh, is, is beginning or ending. Um, there's one particular issue that has uh, really galvanized the progressive uh, left, I'd say, uh, across the, 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 the country. And that has been keeping Rahm Emanuel 
uh, out of the Biden administration, not even because of his uh, failed record uh, in public life, which is you know too long to list here, but has you know just been marked by trying to appease and cozy up to corporate interests and billionaires, people like Elon Musk, while just leaving working people out in the cold. We saw that throughout his time in Chicago, he never met with you know or, or listened to uh, grassroots community organizations. Some of you know you and McDunkey's reporting on who Rom was taking meetings with. It was all the you know business. CEOs. That's who he was representing as mayor. And I think that's who he's represented throughout his career and would continue to represent in a Biden cabinet, which is why uh, many of us don't want him involved. But the real uh, uh, key is his role in the Laquan McDonald scandal and and, and being a player in this uh, truly tragic scandal that he covered up a video withheld video from public view of uh jason van dyke shooting laquan mcdonald 16 times i think that that will left a stain on his career that he'll carry for the rest of his life and that's what a lot of folks like alexandria ocasio cortez and mondaire jones um to incoming congress people um have cited as their reason for uh, really being opposed to Rom's selection. Uh, the list can go on and on, and you know, but but I think that the the message that this should send is. If Joe Biden does select Rahm Emanuel, it won't only be a poor choice, you know, in terms of his administration. And, you know, I think Rom should be as far away from the levers of state power as possible, considering what he's done when he's had access to that. Uh, but it would also just send such a, uh, a debilitating message to uh, the community, the very communities and constituencies that won Joe Biden this election and basically saying, I actually don't plan to listen to you or take you seriously at all. And I don't think that's the foot that this administration wants to start out their term in office on. I would hope it wouldn't be, you know, I mean, it's kind of fool me once, fool me twice. There was times when Obama selected, you know, when Obama selected uh, Rahm as his chief of staff uh, back in late 2009, uh, or early 2009, late uh, 2008, that people in Chicago thought, hey, maybe this means we'll get some good some, some good deals in Chicago, you know, because Rahm's, you know, Chicago guy, he's going into the administration. What the, what happened? You know, we got, what did Rahm do? He fought to get a lower stimulus bill, advised uh, Barack Obama not to pursue health care reform, saying it was too uh, much of a political cost. Uh, luckily, Obama didn't listen to him. He told him not to pursue immigration reform because he said it was a third rail of American politics, which Obama did listen to him on, and we got zero action on that until the uh, uh, Dreamer actions years later. I mean, this is somebody who just is opposed to the progressive vision uh, that so many of us uh, hold and is going to fight for that, when, when whether he's education or transportation or U.S. trade representative, if he's in there, you best believe that uh, Rahm Emanuel is going to be fighting tooth and nail to make sure that uh, he destroys any opportunities for success for the progressive left. So I think that it's pretty clear that this is a toxic choice and that, uh, and, and I don't even know, I mean, we haven't heard from Biden's people that Ron is a key candidate. It's more been kind of media. Um, and we all know that Ron Manuel himself is kind of a master of uh, media hype. So I would not be shocked if he was involved in some of this rumor mill himself. Um, but we've better uh, hope that the Biden uh, team is smart enough to stay as far away as possible. Yeah, that was well put. I um, And I assume that if Rom himself is not in the cabinet, there will be someone with Rom's worldview 
uh, in that cabinet with influence to Biden. It's just uh, that's where Biden comes from. So it's not as though you're going to completely keep out people who view the world the way Rahm Emanuel or Brendan O'Reilly view the world. It's just this particular purveyor of that view. And when, when you were talking, Miles, I had this flash. Let's let's say he is uh, nominated for trade rep. I think that requires a Senate confirmation. I know uh, the, a secretary in the cabinet does. Can you imagine if it comes before the Senate? And Republicans, man, they want to make things as bad as they can for Dems. You remember during the campaign how Donald Trump uh, used Joe uh, Biden's support uh, for the crime bill in the 90s against Joe Biden in an attempt to get black voters to vote for Donald Trump. Imagine just Rom at a Senate confirmation hearing. We might finally find out what happened with Juan McDonald. I almost want Joe Biden to do this so I can hear a Republican interrogate Rom on Laquan McDonald. You know how Rom, you ask the mayor, Mayor Rom, why did you bury the Laquan McDonald video and keep it from under oath? He can't duck and dodge, Miles. It's well, you you just made a strong uh, case for him to be at least thrown in front of some type of Senate committee for some reason. I, I hope it's not, you know, him being involved in a new administration. But I'm I right there with you that he should definitely be forced to get under oath in front of the Senate and answer some questions. I mean, look, you, you just brought up the crime bill. Rom was intimately involved in passing that. He also, uh, under Clinton, was an architect of NAFTA. He helped to write the the damn legislation um, that fueled offshoring of jobs that helped lead to this flatlining of wages that basically you know demolished the U.S. manufacturing sector and then uh, welfare reform was another you know uh, uh, key point that uh, that that Rom brought to the uh, Clinton administration was passing through this um, the this bill that shredded the safety net that, uh, you know, led to a spike in extreme poverty and has widely been condemned by all factions of democratic, uh, uh, coalition now. So yeah, I mean, Rom's got a lot to answer for. He sure does. And by the way, Rom on immigration is no joke either, which is so funny because at some point he, uh, <laughs> he was trying to jump aboard that bandwagon and he would always be talking about some relative or another of his who came to this country through Ellis Island and how much he believes in immigration. I'm like, you are something else, Rahm Emanuel. There's a memo. There's a memo. I, people should, I mean, I don't know. I read this stuff because I'm a nerd, but in 1996, uh, you wrote a memo to... Yes the Clinton administration advising him to achieve a record number of deportations of what he called criminal aliens. Like this is, this is somebody who's, he was telling a Democrat to do this. So like as much as he might, you know, celebrate not, you know, people might have, uh, you know, come to whatever the left moments in their lives. I don't think Rom's had that. He's just kind of triangulated and followed the political pathways he's needed to be able to retain power. So when he cheered on things like Chicago being a sanctuary city, I mean, obviously to this when he was mayor, you know, look a little deeper because he also told Democrats to not even touch the immigration, the issue of immigration, because he referred to it as quote unquote, the third rail of American politics. Well, now look, the democratic party relies on the Latino vote in order to uh, win at a national level. So do you really want somebody in your administration who's been so, uh, you know, um, 
has had so much antipathy towards the undocumented community and towards uh, immigrants in general um, that he was he had actually advised Democrats on a national scale when he was at the DCCC to not even talk about immigration, let alone propose legislation. So, yeah, I think that you're very right to bring up the immigration as a particularly toxic aspect of uh, Ron's record. Oh, yeah. Joe Biden, I know you're a big listener of this show, and you particularly love the segments where Miles comes on. Please do yourself a huge favor. Find some other right-wing Democrat. If you got to put one on, put Brendan Riley on. The guy, he's clearly bored with being alderman of the 42nd Ward. Put him on. All right, let's uh, just one one last thing. If you're going to put and this, if since we're since we're sending a direct message to Joe Biden and his team, which I appreciate because they, you know, yeah, I I, I know that they're listening uh, <laughs> right now and every day. Uh, uh, hey, if you're going to do Rom, might as well just pick a Republican senator from uh, maybe a state that has a Democratic governor. And put that person in your cabinet, and you know that might do a little bit better for the party long term than than having Rom in there. If you're gonna have Rom, you might as well have a Republican. And if you're gonna have a Republican, you might as well do it in a state that's gonna appoint a Democratic senator. Maybe that ends up giving you control of the Senate to actually get some stuff done. Just just a thought. Well, as you said, Joe Biden is an avid listener, and Joe Biden has responded. So this idea is a bunch of malarkey. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Biden. It was a good idea. It was actually a very good idea. And immediately I was scrambling and trying to think of what state fits that. You know, I was trying to think, uh, I think Louisiana. I don't know who the Republican senator is in Louisiana. Uh, John Kennedy, <laughs> what can you find for him? That could, Hey, John Kennedy, uh, like you, you have to pick a cabinet position that really has no power. You know what I'm saying? You got to put him, give him something they won't can't possibly do any damage but it's a great idea miles i really like that idea well and people i mean you know obama famously selected ray LaHood, a republican to run the transportation department under his administration so it's not unheard of you know and if you're trying to do this gang of rivals thing at least make it politically advantageous for yourself long term no it used to be i'm telling you this i've said this before presidents would generally try to find one cabinet position they could fill with a member of the other party. I think this ended with Trump. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and you're right. It was like, so Obama put LaHood in and uh, his replacement, of course, didn't do him any good. Andrew, uh, Aaron Schock. So a lot of good that did Obama. But uh, all right. Now, uh, the big fight uh, coming ahead, I've mentioned this several times, is the battle for uh, the two Senate positions in Georgia. When I talk about Chicago, so much of the stimulus package that Chicago will get uh, to, quote unquote, balance its budget, because let's face it, Miles, this budget is largely is anticipating getting money from the feds. The state's anticipating getting money from the feds. You only get the money from the feds really uh, if you have a good working relationship with the Senate, that's pretty obvious. So two really important Senate races coming up in January uh, in Georgia. And um, what are the lessons that you learned from Michigan? Uh, you talked in the show many times about how, uh, how you were doing volunteer work in Michigan. You were following the Michigan Senate race with Gary Peters very closely. What are some of the lessons you learned from Michigan that would help the Democrats in Georgia? I think this is going to be the first test of uh, this new democratic, you know, administration coalition, the 
party is uh, in a in a position right now where obviously Georgia is not an ideal state to try to run the table and win two Senate races. Um, but that said, the conditions are very ripe for uh, uh, there to be a. Um, you know, rejection of what Donald Trump has, uh, you know, represented throughout his time in office. And also for all of the, you know, Trump MAGA people to have some type of a, you know, a protest outcry that ends up undermining the actual uh, Republican Senate candidates uh, in the state. So on one level, I think that there's a, a chance that this, uh, uh, both of these races will see some of the Republicans eating their own. We've started to see the uh, beginnings of some of that already on the Democratic side now. Um, there's been some pretty encouraging news, I'd say, about at least what the Democrats are planning to do. Uh, I believe it was BuzzFeed had a story uh, this past week about some of the efforts of the local grassroots groups across the state there that are aligned with uh, Stacey Abrams' larger project about, you know, signing up new voters, but also fighting for voting rights and uh, building up uh, democratic institutions in uh, across the state to help provide uh, more turnout. I think it, as we've seen, Georgia is... It's a state that just voted for Joe Biden. Actually, one of the few, uh, it's one of the few areas where Democrats had a House pickup um, was, uh, I think it was in the suburbs of Atlanta, uh, a House race that Democrats won. So there's there's opportunities for Democrats to succeed in uh, the state, but it's going to come down to base turnout. And I think that that's what we're seeing on the, you know, and so that just means like less persuasion, right? More getting people to, who already would support a Democratic agenda uh, to actually show up and vote. Because as we know, in this country, it's about half of people just don't vote. Uh, and in poor communities, especially communities of color, that uh, ratio is, more, is magnified, unfortunately. So um, the work that some of these groups are doing is door-to-door uh, canvassing. And we have a pandemic that is rapidly raging across the country. It's incredibly serious. Um, and I understand reticence to do that type of in-person voter uh, engagement. But Republicans did it. Uh, uh, across, you know, for, for, for months they've been doing it um, ahead of the election. And we, while we saw record turnout and Joe Biden won this election by, you know, he won eight, over 80 million votes, the most ever, um, Donald Trump also won a lot more than he, he won in 2016. It looks like about 74 million right now. Um, there needs to, the Republicans succeeded in, in, in bringing out their base. They just didn't have enough votes because Democrats, you know, did, did better, but we can't just rely on that dynamic to uh, lead to victories uh, in, in that state for in these Senate races. So I think that means using all the tools at the disposal, there's ways to safely uh, canvas and do door to door work that these groups I think are, are showing, you know, if somebody shows up at the door, if, if, if they show up to somebody's door and somebody answers and isn't wearing a mask, they just leave literature and say thanks goodbye you know it's so i think that there's a real effort to try to mitigate uh some of the harmful um 
possibilities of COVID spread during the uh, during this canvassing work. But I encourage people, you know, if you care about this, donate to some of these groups that are doing this work. I mean, obviously, the you can donate to the candidates themselves. Um, but this is such a critical juncture. And who would have thought, you know, that <laughs> the future of so many of these progressive uh, proposals that have been pushed by not just like the Bernie wing of the party, but by Biden's team uh, itself are dependent on what happens uh, in, in early January. So, yeah, I think that this is going to be a real test uh, of whether Democrats have their uh, act together and uh, can uh, come out with wins. I think it's quite possible. There's, look at these Look at these Republicans. Leffler and Purdue are both, literally both of them were implicated in uh, this scam of hearing. They were in this closed door, you know, profiled uh, or classified hearing of, in, I think, January, maybe early February, uh, about the threat of COVID. Uh, spreading across the U.S. and both of them then immediately went to their investment team and you know to, moved all their stocks around and make millions and millions of dollars while openly publicly still denying that COVID was even a threat. You know this is not just insider trading. That's just like how can you be allowed in public office if you have uh, you know done that? So I think it's not like these two are incredibly popular Republicans. They could be unseated, but Democrats need to actually turn out the base and they need to um, treat this as the you know really massive uh, uh, test that, that that it is for them. They'll be aided by. I mean, I. I uh, kind of teased at this earlier, but these Republicans are wiling out down there going after, I mean, you've got Roger Stone pardoned by Trump who now had this like dormant super PAC that he is using to try to get Trump supporters to write in Trump's name, even though on the ballot that is printed in Georgia, there's no space to write in names, but whatever, they're just saying, write it in any, anyway. Um, against rather than voting for Leffler or Purdue, the Republican candidates in order to send a message saying that they're not doing enough to stand with dear leader Trump in his efforts to do a coup and steal the election. Um, you know, so there's a lot of this, uh, and, and, and Roger Stone is not the only one. There's this whole movement of, uh, of MAGA people trying to influence the Republican election and get them to protest the Republican establishment by either not showing up or voting against, um, Purdue and Leffler. And I think that, you know, it speaks to this broader poisoning of the well that the Republican Party has done. They already said that both Brian Kemp and the secretary um, of uh, state there, uh, the Republican, um, that they held a fraudulent election. So, you know, why does that why would that make Republicans then want to turn out to vote if they think it's all you know, uh, a fraud in the first place. So, um, yeah, so I think there's plenty of opportunities for Democrats. That said, it's Georgia. It's going to be, it's going to be tough, but, um, but there's a chance. Yeah. It's, and, and it's, it's funny that the way the dynamics are playing out here, uh, we talk so much about the, the divisions in the Democratic Party with Rahm Emanuel and the Brendan Rileys uh, against the Carlos Ramirez Rosas, that kind of thing. Uh, and now we have uh, the divisions within the Republican Party. And I and I just am shaking my head. You were the one who told me, I did not realize that you told me this, that Roger Stone uh, had been operating like this. I hadn't, haven't had an opportunity to track it down because I've been on the show. But... Um, I've been following that campaign and the rhetoric out of Purdue and, and Leffler, particularly Leffler, Kelly Leffler, have been so extreme. MAGA, 
that it's like, what are they, what, <laughs> what are they supposed to do? I mean, I'm all happy. I'm happy. There's a split and don't get me wrong. You know, and maybe maybe Donald Trump has decided it's in his best political interest not to have a Republican majority uh, in the Senate for whatever reason. I don't know. I uh, well, but, I uh, kind of use it as a as a bargaining uh, chip. I mean, this the, the group is called the Committee for American Sovereignty, um, okay. which is already kind of troubling. Um, aren't we already sovereign? Uh, but they they say, uh, "quote If we can do this," meaning write in Trump's name and, you know, to get these, to get Purdue and Loeffler to lose, we have a real chance at getting these rhino senators, meaning Republicans in name only, to act on the illegitimate and corrupt election presided over by a Democrat party that is invested in the communist takeover of our great nation. So that's the pitch to vote against the Republicans in wow <laughs> by the MAGA Roger Stone world. So I don't know. It's it's beyond twelve dimensional chess. I don't know what's going. On. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going. It is beyond. Uh, yeah, I just can't figure that one out. But uh, I'll say this again: some really important, serious issues. Putting aside your ideological d- differences uh, in a Democratic Party, if the state of Illinois, if the city of Chicago, if other states and other cities are going to get assistance from the feds. If the restaurant industry is going to get assistance from the feds, if every single industry that's hanging on by a thread in the middle of this pandemic is going to get assistance from the feds, I think it's pretty obvious the Dems have to win in Georgia because Mitch McConnell has shown no interest whatsoever, Miles, uh, in having any kind of legitimate negotiation. It's not the Republican Party of George, even George W. Bush at the end of his administration when we were heading into a recession. So, yeah, I um, I don't know what game of chess they are playing, but uh, if it leads to uh, a Democratic victory in Georgia... I'll take it. I'll take what I can get at this time. Uh, all right. Before we let you go, I got to get your thoughts on a topic having nothing to do with politics, but one that's near and dear to my heart. And people uh, may not realize this, but Miles Kemp is a huge Chicago Bulls fan, bleeds of Bulls red. And uh, so uh, Dennis was very critical of the Bulls for drafting Patrick Williams. He said it was the single dumbest move he's ever seen his entire oh, life. Well, that's fake news. <laughs> We had a discussion on this. Uh, <laughs> I just want to see if the, the doctor was paying attention. Uh, but uh, he was mildly critical of it. And uh, and uh, so what's your thoughts about the Bulls taking uh, a 19-year-old unheralded uh, freshman from, uh, uh, I think he, um, I don't even think he was starting on, on his uh, college team. Uh, so what's your thoughts on taking Patrick Williams? It's a, it's a risk. I think that there's... Uh, the Chicago Bulls as an organization have been understandably and I think deservingly like widely mocked, uh, criticized, critiqued for years and years. And it really culminated in, under the um, guidance of John Paxson and Gar Foreman. Um, and it really culminated this past year of the All-Star game. You remember it was held in Chicago. We didn't oh, have yeah. any players. Um, the team was just going through complete 
you know, meltdown at that, <laughs> at that time. We can't say it, you know, any nicer than that. And uh, it was a mess. It was embarrassment. You know, it's just like, what is this? This is the NBA team that this city, this storied franchise that, you know, won six championships with Michael Jordan in the 1990s. This is what we're, you know, putting forward on the national stage when we're hosting this um, international event of the All-Star Game. Just so sad. So, um the fact we moved on in just a matter of a few months from that uh, state of affairs to now having a new general manager, new vice president of basketball operations, whole new kind of front office staff and everything. Um, they haven't coached a single game of basketball. And a new coach, of course, with Billy Donovan, Jimbo is gone, who was widely uh, you know, rumored to be the single Trump supporting professional basketball coach in the NBA. I don't know if that's true, but that's, you know, that's what the, the, the word is. Uh, but Jimbo's gone. J- Jim Boylan is gone. We've got a new coach. Uh, a lot of people just want to put faith in uh, the, the new leadership. Uh, Karnasovas, is that yes. decent pronunciation? AK, as I like to call him. Yeah. People have a lot of faith. It's kind of a black box, what's going on at the Advocate Center right now. It's like, is this, are they, you know, see, do they have something up their sleeve? Are they going to do some crazy trade or something? We just don't know. There's no, there's nothing to go on. But it will be as it seems likely if they keep the current um, roster set. It'll just be a grand experiment of like how terrible of a coach was Jim Boylan. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, are they going to be that much better with just moving a couple pieces around, but not actually changing the the core at all. I'm really interested in uh, why Dennis is so uh, anti uh, Patrick Williams. though. I got to get, you know, because I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know enough about it. Dennis, defend your position. I'm not so anti Patrick Williams, but it is like you had the number four pick and you took a gamble. You know what I mean? Not your average yeah, number four pick. You know what I mean? But also, you didn't have March Madness. You really don't know a lot about these players, I guess. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Maybe they know something that we don't. I just think that there's like in us not having to deal with the ball family at all now in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> For me, the might have been better overall, but. And we, I'm glad we don't have to deal with any of that crap. So, all right. Well, you know, I, I put it this way. We're in the middle of a pandemic. So I'm looking forward to basketball to help me get through my new fire pit to help me get through and, uh, various movies to help me get through. Uh, so I welcome the, uh, the we're all making it through and look, this is it. We're training camps just a few weeks uh, away. Yeah. We've had a we've had, we've we've had a we've had a Bears team that's turned out to not be as quite as excellent as we you know, initially maybe hoped. So, um, so yeah, so that crap. So I mean, it's got, we got to have something to uh, look look forward to. Um, yeah. City politics, not things aren't going. <laughs> City politics. <laughs> I, I always find that entertaining. Uh, that'll get me through any pandemic. City politics. All right, Miles. Miles Conflasson from In These Times. Thank you so much. Have a great Thanksgiving to you and your family. I don't know how you're going to be celebrating it. Uh, if you're going to be in isolation in a phone booth, uh, yeah. the way that uh, Gavin Newsom wants everybody other than himself to be. Uh, but uh, I want you to have a great uh, Thanksgiving. Stay safe and sound. We'll talk to you uh, real soon. All right. Thank, happy Thanksgiving to, to you and yours, to everybody. Always a pleasure to talk to both you and uh, Dr. D and uh, talk soon. All right. That's the great miles. Go Dolphins, buddy. Go Dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> I love the dolphin sound, man. Only in the Ben Jarofsky show, the dolphin sound. Yeah, you Miles Confless, what a great guy. You're not hearing the dolphin on Al Franken, all right? <laughs> Just saying. All right. I want to thank Miles Confless and the Pride and Joy Whitney Young High School and In These Times. Outstanding job, as he always does. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend. The pride and joy of all Illinois, without whom the show would be possible. The man that Miles calls Dr. D. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everyone. This little light of mine. This little light of mine. That's correct. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine.